This past week, our church lost a pillar. The flowers here on the chancel this morning are uh, in honor of uh, Judge Frank Drewota. Uh, they were given by uh, Tommy and Trish Frist, uh, two of uh, Frank and Claire's very close friends. But Frank moved here in 1943, fall of 1943, almost 75 years ago, when his father, Dr. Frank Drewota, became the founding pastor of this church. He, left an established church in Mayfield, Kentucky, and brought his two children, Frank and his older sister, Claire Ann, who is uh, Bill Carpenter's uh, mother, uh, moved here to Nashville to start a new church. And this week, we said goodbye uh, to Frank after a, a very uh, short uh, battle with ALS. But Frank went on to become a lawyer and then a judge, and then he became the Chief Justice of the Tennessee Supreme Court, not once but twice. And when he retired, he was the second longest serving uh, Chief Justice or Justice in Tennessee state history. So how's that for a resume? But yesterday afternoon, we celebrated his life here in the sanctuary, and I shared four things that I want to lift up here at the beginning about Frank uh, that really defined who he was. The first was his faith and how he didn't just talk about his faith, he lived his faith. It was evident in the way that he treated other people. The second thing was the unconditional love that he had for his family, for his wife, for his children, for his sister, for his grandchildren, and all of his extended family. He would do anything for his family. The third was his humility. And I truly believe that Frank was perhaps the most humble person I have ever known in my life. If you think about everything that he accomplished, his resume, his achievements, you would never know that when you were around him because he treated everybody the same. He treated everybody with dignity and respect. He treated people the way he would want to be treated. And then fourth, the joy that he found in lifelong friendships. And Frank had many friends that spanned over decades, but he knew that one of the greatest gifts in life was having friendships that lasted years and decades. And he had friends going all the way back to his days at NBA and Vanderbilt, and he was faithful to those friendships throughout his entire life. But there's one more virtue that I want to add to that list that Frank lived out. And that was the fact that he was incredibly generous. And he believed in this church, and he believed in its mission. And he always wanted to see it reach its potential. And so as we say goodbye uh, to Judge Frank Drewota, who spent his entire life here at Woodmont, let's do everything we can to let his humility, his generosity, and his spirit live on here at Woodmont in the years ahead. We say farewell to a wonderful man and let's keep his legacy alive. Every year in the month of April, we have our stewardship campaign. It's an annual uh, campaign. And, um, and what we do in our stewardship campaign is that we ask all of our members to prayerfully consider making a commitment, making a pledge to support the mission and ministries of Woodmont for another year. And then we take those after next Sunday and uh, we start to set our operating budget in a responsible way. And so I hope and pray that you will participate in that uh, this year. But today, I want to spend some time talking about one of the most complicated relationships that we have in our lives. 
It's a relationship that we all have. It's a relationship that brings both stress and joy, security and fear, status, and perhaps a sense of inferiority. It's a relationship that gives us the potential to impact and change the world, and it also gives us the potential to be selfish and self-centered. It's a relationship that carries with it lots of different emotions, and of course, I'm talking about our relationship with money. People are funny when it comes to talking about their money and about things. I can tell you that churches sometimes get a bad name because people say all they want is your money. Uh, as a pastoral counselor, I can tell you that, that money is probably the number one cause of problems in marriages and in families. Our culture is obsessed with money, and yes, it is something that we all think about and that we have to deal with constantly. And we ask questions like, do we have enough? How can we get more? Why does that person have so much? What does it really mean to be generous and to give sacrificially? Now, Jesus knew all this, and that's why he had more to say on this subject of money and possessions than anything else in the Bible. Only a fool can read the Gospels and not reach that conclusion. But guess what? Jesus wasn't raising money for a church. He wasn't raising money for a, a stewardship budget. Jesus was talking about money as it relates to faith and compassion and the condition of our heart. When I moved here to Nashville almost 11 years ago, I, I did not have much money. I was two years out of seminary. I would accepted the senior minister position here at Woodmont at the mature age of 27. Uh, the church was probably wondering what it was doing. I was wondering what the church was doing, to be honest with you. But I moved here with a U-Haul and a, a bunch of, you know, all of my earthly belongings. And I had a golden retriever named Tucker. Some of you remember Tucker. And I can remember looking in the rearview mirror at Tucker, sitting in the back seat, looking out the window on I-40, probably wondering what in the heck we were doing. Where were we going? What were we getting into? When I got here to Woodmont, it was pretty clear fairly quickly that Woodmont was not in great financial shape. The church was just under $2 million in debt. We had just over a million dollar operating budget. Uh, also, the outreach budget at that time had been cut to zero to pay bills and to pay staff, and people were not happy about that, and understandably so. So right away, right away I knew that one of the greatest priorities that we had to establish here at Woodmont was to create a culture of generosity so that we could be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in a broken and hurting world. And we've all worked hard to do that over the past 10 years. And it's been your generosity and your sacrifice and your commitment that has made that possible. We became debt-free in 2011. We now have an operating budget that is just under uh, $3 million. It's about $2.75 million. We're trying to get that up over $3 million this year if we can. But I couldn't be more proud of all the ministries and the programs and the outreach efforts that our church offers on a regular basis. And so I first, this morning, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for your commitment. 
Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your willingness to make sure that we are living out our mission, that we are being a, a, a beacon, that we are spreading the love of Christ into a world that desperately needs to hear it. It's made all the difference, and thank you. But I also want to say this. We've not yet reached our potential. As a congregation, there is still so much more that we can do, and I believe that we're going to do it, and I believe we're going to do it together. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is basically saying, you want to know how you can tell what's really important to a person? Look at where they spend their money. Jesus was very clear, heart follows treasure. Treasure doesn't always follow heart. This is not just a Christian truth. This is a human truth. If you're having a hard time figuring yourself out, um, go take the Enneagram test. But another thing you could do is look at where you spend your money, and that will tell you what your values and priorities are in life. And yes, your time is absolutely important as well. But that will answer the question, what's most important to me? What matters the most to me? It is possible to care about something and not support it financially. But it's simply impossible to support something financially and not care about it. Think about that. If you invest in your children's education, then you will care about whether or not they are learning and growing. If you invest in your college or your alma mater, then you will care how that school is doing and whether or not it's attracting the, the right kinds of students. If you invest in a house or a condo in Nashville, then your property taxes just went up. But also, you will care about taking care of it, and you will care about whether or not it increases in value. If you invest in your marriage, and you will care about whether or not you and your spouse have a healthy relationship. If you invest in the stock market, you will care about what it does because that will affect you and when and how you can retire. And the same is true with the church and its ministries. If you invest in the church, then you will care about whether or not it is living out its mission and whether or not it's changing lives. And I can tell you that this church is doing that on a regular basis, and it's doing that because of your support. Jesus said in the most important sermon ever given, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he was absolutely right. If you want to know what somebody's values are, look at where they spend their money. Now, I've been reading a very interesting book recently by a journalist named Johan Hari. And if you have anybody in your family that wrestles with anxiety or depression, uh, I would recommend this book to the, to the family or even to the person that's wrestling with it. But uh, Hari wrote a book a few years ago called Chasing the Scream that was on the subject of addiction. And his new book is called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And Hari is basically arguing that for so long we have looked at depression and anxiety 
as being a chemical imbalance in the brain. And maybe that's true. He's not dismissing that. But he's saying that there is something that happens before that imbalance occurs. And he calls it lost connections. Lost connections with meaningful work. Lost connections with our values. Lost connections with people. He says this. I want you to hear this quote. Loneliness hangs over our culture today like a thick smog. More people say they feel lonely today than ever before. And I wondered if this might be related to our apparent rise in depression and anxiety. One of the arguments that, that Hari makes in the book is, is this. He says, as our culture has become more lonely, it has also become more materialistic. He says, people turn to money and to stuff to fill voids that money and stuff simply can't fill. He talks about two different <clears throat> motivations that will get people out of bed in the morning. The first is intrinsic motivation, and the second is extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motives are the things that, that we do purely because we value doing them, not because of something we're going to get from them. Children are acting out of intrinsic motives when they play in their natural environment. It, it's a behavior that is just satisfying to us. But extrinsic motivation, these are the things, or this is what, what people do because they're going to get something. Maybe it's money, maybe it's admiration, rewards, status, uh, you name it, good grades. People that hate their job but that go there every day because they need the paycheck, they're operating out of extrinsic motivation. And what psychologists have found in their research, broadly speaking, is that people who achieved their extrinsic goals did not experience any increase in their day-to-day -day happiness. But people who achieved their intrinsic goals did become significantly happier and more satisfied. And Hari says that, that most of the people in our culture spend all of their time chasing extrinsic motivational things that don't necessarily make them any happier. And he says, this is how our culture is set up. Get the right grades, get a good paying job, rise up in the ranks, buy more stuff. But the truth is, nothing's wrong with any of those things, but the truth is that, that none of those things bring us the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we think they will. But here's the real kicker. Constantly focusing on extrinsic motivation has the potential to poison our relationships. Why? Because studies have shown that when we become more superficial, when we become more materialistic, the shallower our relationships get. And that's a challenge. Or as Jonathan Haidt, uh, who's one of, one of my favorite uh, uh, social psychologists, he teaches up at NYU School of Business, he wrote a book that Nick Zeppos gave to me years ago called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he says, happiness, some people think, comes from buying stuff and acquiring stuff. He says, no. Some people think it comes from within, like the Buddhists teach. He says, no. Happiness and fulfillment in life comes from between. It comes from connections. It comes from relationships. Frank Drewota figured that out a long time ago. He had a resume that was off the chart. But he figured out that fulfillment in life comes from relationships. It comes from people. 
Megan and I got married in 2009. We're about to celebrate our nine-year nine anniversary, which is uh, hard to believe. Feels like 15. I'm just kidding. She's not here this morning. <laughs> if you tell her that, I, I'm going to know where it came from. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to close this sermon by sharing with you from the heart why we give to this church. And it's not because I'm the senior minister here. I want to share with you the reasons that we give to support Woodmont. First of all, we give to this church because we know that God has asked us to do it, and we know that it's a part of living out our faith. We know that, that, that the church is called to be the hands and feet of Christ in a broken and hurting world, and, and this is the only way that we can bring that, make that possible is by our generosity, your generosity. So the very first reason that we give has to do with our faith. It has to do with theological reasons. God has commanded us to do that. The second reason that we give to this church is because we see on a regular basis how it is changing lives. We've seen marriages saved. We've seen alcoholics stop drinking. We've seen people who don't know what to do about a family member that's either addicted to drugs or that's depressed. We've seen them get support in one of the Al-Anon groups here at this church. We've seen a small little uh, mission based out of Austin, Texas called Mobile Loaves and Fishes grow and evolve into a huge independent nonprofit that's about to have to find a new home because of how big it's become. And they're serving people from all over the city, teaching them how to grow food, teaching them how to be uh, independent. Uh, and they're serving hungry people every single day. We've seen habitat houses go up. We've seen the Morgan Scott ministry take off. We've seen the homeless fed and clothed and housed throughout the winter months. We're now seeing a new elementary school that we've just adopted as a church, Fall Hamilton, over in the uh, fairgrounds area where we can go and support those teachers and those students and those families. Many of the students are on reduced lunch or free lunch, and they live in situations of poverty. And so for 11 years, we have been watching this church change and transform lives on a regular basis, and we want to be a part of it. We want to continue to be a part of it. The third reason we give is because we want our children to grow up learning about God, Jesus, and Christian values. And that is no longer the norm in this world, by the way. We want Montgomery and Clayton and Wade to learn what it means to love God and love their neighbor. We want them to learn what it means to treat other people the way that they want to be treated in life. We want them to, to learn the timeless stories of the Bible, stories about Jesus. We want our children to have a Christian foundation that is not superficial, but that will follow them the rest of their lives. And guess what? Every Sunday at 9.30, when they leave those steps and when they go down to the kids' commons, they are getting that, and we couldn't be more excited about that. The fourth reason we give is because we believe in the power of community. In a world where loneliness and social isolation are on the rise, in a world where divorce and addiction tears families apart, we all need a place where we can go to find love and support. And as cool as social media is, and it's pretty cool, in my opinion, it just doesn't do the trick. Johan Hari says, all of us have certain innate needs to feel connected, to feel valued, to feel secure, to feel we make a difference in the world, to have autonomy, to feel that we're good at something. He says what we really need are connections. But what we're told we need in our culture is stuff and status. There is no substitute in life for connections 
and for authentic community. And I believe that that's found in the church. And I know that that's found in this church because I found it. And I experience it on a regular basis, not just as the minister, but as somebody who's in lots of different small groups. And lastly this morning, we give to Woodmont because it is liberating. If we didn't give first, then our temptation would be to spend all of our money on ourselves. And that's dangerous, no matter how much money you have or don't have. You see, greed is a condition of the heart, and it happens on many different socioeconomic levels. But when we become generous, we liberate ourselves because we use some of what we have to help others. And that's an incredible feeling. One of my mentors and friends, and he knew many people in this congregation, a man named Clayton McCorder, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he had a big impact on my life when I came to, to Nashville. But he told me a story years ago that I'm going to close with today. It's a great story. It's about a, a, a small college that was struggling to survive. It was having a hard time paying the bills, was having a hard time paying its teachers, recruiting good students. And a very wealthy, generous man came along, and he made a significant donation to that school. And that school turned around, and it became a healthy, thriving university, and it totally changed the course because of the generosity of this one man. Well, years later, the school wanted to honor that man to thank him for the gift that he had given. But guess what had happened? The man had lost all of his wealth. He was a, a, a shell of his former self. He was actually homeless and living on the street, but the school found him, and, and they told him they wanted to honor him, and at first he said, no, I don't want to come. He was embarrassed about what had happened to him, but they talked him into coming, and so they flew him to the school, and they, they bought him some nice clothes because he had lost everything, and they put him up on stage for this great celebration, and the president of the university asked him to share his thoughts as he looked out over the vibrant student body that he had helped create with his gift. And his words summed up his feelings in this way. He said, I thought I had lost it all, but I learned something tonight. What you give away in life, you never really lose. Amen.